Barrett. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for never letting us become familiar with your grace, your mercy, and of course your love. Thank you also for allowing us to partake in said love, to spread it amongst ourselves and also out to a world that's just in desperate need of it. Even though in many ways they don't even know it, Father, we just pray for the opportunity to reveal that love to them, that they might be attracted to the gospel truth about your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that before it's too late, so that we might have additional brothers and sisters for all of eternity in heaven with us. That would be fantastic, Father. Thank you so much for the opportunity to partake in that salvation. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt and to make a celebration like this evening a reality for each and every one of us. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence. Uh, I want to start with a simple question this question sort of came up on Sunday up here on the board. What would we ever do without God's promises? What would we ever do? Where would our hope be? Where would our confidence lay? Like, what would we ever do without God's promises? He's the only person who's never lied to us. Only one. The only person who's never deceived us. The only person who's never manipulated us in such a way that he has disappointed us in the end. The only person. That's it. The only one who's never lied to us, never deceived us, never manipulated us. We can leave all of those shenanigans up to the humans in our lives, even those we love, for starters. Never mind our enemies who proactively try to trip us up. Again, what would we ever do without God's promises? <sighs> Consider the following. Go to Hebrews 13.5. Consider the following with that question fresh in our minds. Hebrews 13, 5. Where would we be? What would, a, what would a night like this even be like for any one of us? If nothing else, we'd be incredibly insecure. There's no peace in that. There's no rest in that. All the promises just... All the things we hope for in this world just fall, fall right apart. Hebrews 13, 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Do not uh, underestimate the proximity of that statement. You say, that's a strange... No, it's really not. Not for this crowd. Seriously, not for this crowd. Money is... Uh, ubiquitous in our lives. Money is, is, is uh, almost a stain 
on our lives. And we'll talk about this a little bit later this evening. We have to remember that the Word of God is, is supernaturally inspired. Every word is perfectly in place. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So ask yourself, what if you had never read this verse before? Or anyone like it? Even the Old Testament references there. What if you've never seen those verses, never read them, never heard them? Do God's promises still exist? Of course. Of course they do. But here's the question. What good is a promise to the confidence of the receiver of said promise if that person is unaware of it? What good is a promise in the Word of God that is yours to keep, yours to cling to, if you're totally unaware of it? If you've never seen it with your own eyes, you've never read it, you've never heard it, what good is it? Is it still a promise? Is it an actual promise from God? Yeah. But what if you have no idea it exists? That's an interesting thing, isn't it? That probably describes, I don't know, 90-something percent of most Christians. What good are all the riches in heaven if you don't know how to spend them? Anyone here not know how to spend money? Everybody in here knows how to spend money all too well, to our own detriment. What good are all the riches in heaven if you don't know how to spend them? So you're an expert at spending money in the world. We just read that in Hebrews, right? Beware of that very, beware of falling into that trap where money becomes the mainstay of your life. What good, what about the riches in heaven though? The ones that Jesus Christ advises us to buy. What good are all those riches if you don't know how to spend them? If you don't even know some of them exist? So this is how we began our message on Sunday. Read your Bible. That's how you know. So I want to I peruse some Bible passages to amplify this point on the board. Read your Bible. Go to Psalm 19.8. Psalm 19.8. Because the Word of God, the, one of the most beautiful things about the Word of God is that it's self-validating. That, you know, as the Word of God says, wisdom vindicates herself. Um, the, word of bought, the, the Word of God um, vindicates itself. It describes itself in, in its own purpose. Psalm 19.8. So the point of the board, read your Bible. And when you do, you read things like this. Psalm 19.8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Where do you find the precepts of the Lord? In the Bible. And what do you get? Your heart rejoices. Oh, that seems pretty cool. The precepts of the Lord are right. Remember all that work on righteousness? You're, you have contentment and peace when you know that you're right before God. Otherwise, your soul is agitated. Your conscience is upset. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Some of you have very blurry vision right now, right? Because between you and the Lord is something green. It's paper. It has, has Benji's on it. Or George Washington's. Some of you are like, George Washington. How about Psalm 119, 28? Psalm 119, 28. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 119.28 My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me. How? According to your word. How do you get that strength then? You have to have the word. What's the point of the board say? Read your Bible. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. How about verse 111, same chapter? 119, 111. Psalm 119, 111. I have, verse 111, I have inherited your testimonies, your word, in other words, your word, forever. For they are the joy of my heart. Not money, not other people, not anything in, in view here. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Huh. How about Isaiah 55, 10? Isaiah 55, verse 10. It's funny because, and I think I, I can speak for quite a few of you at this juncture, the more you read the Bible, more, the more you fall in love with it. Amen? Mm -hmm. Some of you like, I never really read my Bible for years and years and years, and now that I'm reading it, I'm like, whoo, this is the best. It's unbelievable that people don't read their Bible. It's all part of a lie. It's, it's trickery. There are relig whole religions out there that, that uh, intimidate you into thinking you can't understand what God gave you to understand. That you're not smart enough. And, and, and some of these people even overcomplicate things on purpose to have the market cornered. You understand? Isaiah 55.10 for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Oh, doesn't that just instill confidence in you? Look, let's read it again. He says, so will my word be. In other words, that my word bears fruit. I sow my word, it bears fruit. Guaranteed. Well, where does that start? It starts in your soul. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That's something we can cling to. That's a promise from God that says that if you take in the word of God, it will bear fruit. 
peace, contentment, confidence, Christ esteem. All these things we've been learning from this pulpit now for a while. The word never comes back empty-handed. The only way it doesn't have any real effect on you is if you say no. If you don't read your Bible. If you don't follow the good advice on the board. That's really the only way because you shut it out. But if it ends up in your soul, it will bear fruit. That's a guarantee from God. The, the flip side, of course, is if you don't, there's a big old vacuum there in your soul. And what gets in there anyways? Something from what? Your television? From the world? From the radio? From your disgusting friends? Something's going to go in there, right? And something's going to take root and bear fruit. And the next thing you know, you're miserable. And you're like, why am I miserable? Because you didn't listen to this very three-word sentence. This is really sound advice. Because the word never comes back empty-handed. God gave us his word to encourage us towards being ever confident in his promises. It never comes back empty-handed. One of the things we've been learning is that when we take in the word of God, our confidence soars. So we conclude that God gave us his word so that our confidence in his promises would be cemented in our souls. Go to Romans 15, verse 4. 15, verse 4. I mean, he didn't just say, trust me. Technically, right? He could have just said, here's the gospel, good luck. He didn't just say, I'm God, listen, or else. Be obedient. He said, trust me. Here's, here's a bunch of stuff I want to leave you with, right? That's what he did. He left us with a whole Bible. Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in earlier times is written for our instruction, that's the word, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Through the encouragement of the scriptures. Does that make sense? In other words, the word of God. Where do you get your hope from? The word of God. Where do you get your peace from? The word of God. Where do you get your happiness, your contentment? Where do you get your confidence in the Lord? From the word of God. How encouraging with just those few passages we just read. Some are probably like, I've never read them before. And that might be true. I don't know. But that's the beauty of the Word of God. It just said, I never come back empty-handed. Just read me. Again, up there on the board. Read your Bible. Here's an analogy. <clears throat> If someone came up to you and said, maybe this isn't the right season for this, but this is how I think. If someone came up to you and said, here's a card that allows you free ice cream at your favorite ice cream stand for life, you would be so excited. I'm just assuming that you like ice cream, because if not, there's something wrong with you. Let's pretend you did. Suppose it's like one of your favorite foods. And someone said, here, here's a, here's a lifetime card. You'd be so excited. Now, not reading your Bible is like not using this card. It's insanity. Although, in fairness, it falls terribly short as an analogy because 
Nothing compares to the joy and peace we find in the Word of God. It's like you have a free pass, as much as you want. Ring it up, just, you know, like a credit card, I'd be like, as much as you want, shoom, 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 endless. You have as much as you want. And people have it in their wallet, stuffed away. And they only bring it out on like Sundays and Wednesdays. Right? Some of you, if you really had that ice cream card, would probably bring it out more than you go to church. Probably be like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll control myself. I'll just go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, double up on Sundays. <laughs> right? There'd be like nine episodes. You'd be like 7,000 pounds, you know. But you have, and you literally have, you, that doesn't happen in real life. But what does happen in real life is you have that very same thing with the Word of God. Free access as much as you want. Fill yourself up as much as you want. Dine on the Word of God. Eat as much as you can stuff your face with. As much as you want. At any point during the day. Hmm. For example, in this world, it's all too easy to feel like nobody really cares about you. So let's just run with this for a second. In this world, I think this came up on Sunday, it's all too easy to, to feel like nobody really cares about you. I mean, after all, even the most God-fearing Christian alive still has a flesh to deal with, and they sin and injure others. Human beings love to make promises. Human beings love to make promises, but it's literally impossible for them to keep them all for all intents and purposes. Literally impossible. We love to make them. It's impossible to keep them. And I say impossible because eventually our flesh seizes control. We sin and we prove ourselves liars regarding our own promises. We abandon each other, some quicker than others at the drop of a hat. Or to be fair, whenever that unspoken threshold is met in our souls, where our flesh says, quote, that's enough for now. I'm not giving up any more ground on this issue. For some, that threshold involves something as fundamental as wedding vows, or BFF promises, or promises made to children, loved ones, people in need. We all have this threshold. Just to show you why our insecurities exist and ought to, the Spirit's making a point. I hope you're following. Just to show you why our insecurities exist with each other and ought to when it comes to others. Here's a shameful, I hate when he does this, but he does it all, he does it all the time. Here's a shameful example from my own life. <laughs> I remember as an engineering student, the faculty would present goodwill opportunities to the classes. Be like, hey, here's a good opportunity for you to do something, you know, exercise your newfound abilities to help somebody else out. Right? So it's an opportunity for students to exercise their newfound skills in the real world to help others. Well, I ended up promising to make a, for lack of a better term, a hemispherical pad. Basically, think of a half of a sphere on a little thing, that, a little spindle that spun, a big padded sphere. 
I promised to make this device for a disabled woman so she could spin around on it. She basically could only move like her hand a little bit. And they would lay her on this thing and she would just kind of look around all day. All she had to do to control it was push one of two large color-coded buttons that I was going to design and fix on this thing for her. And it was like an engineering product, you know, a project, you know. I went to the facility, and honestly, I got a little freaked out by the woman's condition. Um, made some promises. Even took the buttons from the OT, the occupational therapist, and never went back. Oh, I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> Judging. I can see, because, oh, no. You're awful. What about that woman? I never went back. Why? Because I have a human flesh that apparently at the time wasn't up for the task, serving someone else. I started out with honorable intentions, but utterly failed to fulfill a promise I had made. It's not just, it's, I just have ugh in my nose. Because it's ugly. Like literally, ugly. I only bring that up to illustrate how very low our thresholds are when push comes to shove. Seriously, I couldn't have got by that. I couldn't get by the smell and the, and the drool and the scabs and everything else. And I couldn't get by that to help out a woman that was basically stuck like this her entire life on a, on a, on a pad, on a pillow. I couldn't have got by that. Apparently not. Apparently not. I wanted to do it originally, but once push came to shove, we all flapped, don't we? Oh, yeah, I flew in with my cape, you know, Superman. Shh, got there, and I was like, I'm just going to go out the back door. It just goes to show how low our thresholds are when push comes to shove. How low our thresholds are. The ones that are the underpinning for our so-called promises how fragile the pillars of our promises really are. We can't even carry through on simple promises. And you know what? We know this about ourselves. Amen? Some of you are like, I'm not agreeing to this at all. It's too bad. We all know. Just for a balance statement, for the record, we often do carry through, but the point is that eventually we fail. So, if we're honest, we all fail our promises eventually, at least some of them. And, and here's the key point, at infinitely lower thresholds than our Lord's threshold for failure, which is zero. Which is zero. So, we look at ourselves, we wonder why we're insecure, miserable, and why we torture each other. And all this stuff is because our promises suck. Our threshold is like here. God is infinitely high. And chances are, let's face it, chances are we spend more time and pay more attention to other people with those same thresholds and those same promises and those same failure modes and methods than we do to our Bible, to the Word of God. Here's the, here's the encouragement po encouraging point, though, from Sunday. 
the take that as the backdrop, and then think of this. The impossibility of Christ abandoning his sheep. His threshold is infinite. He doesn't have that lower threshold where he takes the back door out and says, I can't help this one. This one's too far gone. He doesn't have that. We have that. It's impossible for him to abandon his sheep. Jesus Christ is a great shepherd, Hebrews 13, 20, which means that he is perfect in all he does, including guarding his sheep, never ever deserting them. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Hebrews 13, 5 to 6. Uh, compare that to Genesis 28, 15, Deuteronomy 31, 6 to 8, Joshua 1, 5, 1 Chronicles 28, 20, and then we'll get back to Lamentations 3 and close up on that. Here's a review from Sunday. We looked at these on Sunday. Genesis 28:15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Sounds like his word again. It never returns empty-handed, right? His word never returns empty-handed. If God makes a promise, he keeps it. That's vastly different than what I described and we all agreed upon about ourselves, right? It's vastly different. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, up here on the board. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. It's beautiful. How about Joshua 1.5 up here on the board? No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. How about 1 Chronicles 28.20? Then David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. On Sunday, the Spirit gave us a little, you know, read your Bible truth on this topic. And more specifically, he established why we can cling to the simple fact that the Lord never abandons us very simple, actually. This is theology proper. He will not fail you. We saw that in Scripture. Why? 1 John 4.16 says that God is love. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says love never fails. So if you know anything about the transitive property in mathematics, there you go. A equals B and B equals C. Guess what? A equals C. No extra charge. There you go. God never fails. Why? What's, the, what's in between? Love. There you go. It's not, I mean, we may rightly conclude based solely on Holy Scripture being 100% theological that love is the ultimate thing that binds our confidence to Christ. Love ultimately binds our confidence to Christ. Go to Colossians 3.14. Colossians 3.14, we'll see this. Love is the thing that ultimately binds us to Christ to such a degree that he's never lost one of us. That he never lies to us. He always fulfills his promises. He doesn't make promises he can't keep. 
Colossians 3.14, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Unity means one, keeping things together. It's the perfect bond. If you have the perfect bond, it's like the ultimate super glue, right? It never fails. Under any kind of load, it never, ever fails. Who will separate us? Sound familiar? Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let me give you the uh, English Standard Version. I can't stress this enough either. If you're looking for a new Bible, get the ESV one. It's, it's, it's significantly easier to read. And I, I use the MacArthur Study Bible. I think it's the best one out there. And he has it for the ESV. So if you're looking for a good Bible to even give someone, get uh, the ESV translation. Here it is up here on the board. Colossians 3.14. And above all these, uh, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In perfect harmony. Isn't that awesome? It's beautiful. How about verse 15? And then look, what, look how this flows. Same thought pattern. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Hint, hint, read your Bible. <laughs> How do you let something richly dwell within you if you never pick it up? If you never take it in? How is the word of God going to do that if you never take it in? That's the point. Read your Bible. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I just had a, the, the craziest visual. And it literally is. Let's just face it. It literally is the craziest scene you can imagine right now in most households. How many households do you know fulfill that? No, really. How many households could you go into right now in their teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How many homes, even our own in this church, can you walk into and that ever happens? Honestly, right? How, how does that, why is that not happening? The only person that can answer that is you. Why don't I have a greater joy? Why don't I want to sing spiritual songs in my home? Why don't I want to do those things? Why is the first thing I want to do to plop my butt on a couch and crack open a beer or a bottle of wine or, or, or pick a fight with my spouse or, I don't know, instead of grabbing all your kids and hugging them or whatever, your cat or your dog, whatever it is that God gave you to, in Scott's case, a big teddy bear, whatever it is, or other Scott, right? I don't know what you guys do there. Right? Why not hug each other? Why not... Why not hug it out, Scott? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, hug it out. Why not? I don't know. Like, it's queer, right? It's like, it's like queer, not in that, the, the gay sense, but queer. Like, it's odd. Like, to watch in, if you, if you walked into anyone's house and they were doing what is in Holy Scripture, you'd be like, oh, I've got to get out of here. <laughs> right? These people are way over, these people are way over the top. Why? No, for real. You laugh. Okay, get it out of your system. Why? Why is that the odd thing? 
Why is it totally normal to walk in and everybody's stuffing their faces with Doritos with a 75-foot screen on the wall, right? Murmuring and complaining about how tough work is or how horrible their children are. Why, why is that the norm? Why is this not the norm? And why can't we direct ourselves, at least baby steps, back to this direction? If you haven't noticed in the last six months, that is exactly what the Spirit's been doing. Okay, everybody, you got it all clear, right? You know what has to be done here, right? How about we start taking baby steps back to this, to where you're just enjoying life? Seriously. Where you're dependent on these things. Dwell on these things, things that are pure and right and good. Dwell on these things. And maybe, just maybe, you never know. Maybe you start humming hymns around the house. You know, do you got your little uh, hokey cat out? What is it called the hokey cat? The shark? Nobody remembers the hokey cat, old people? Hokey cat? Wasn't that the, the self-powered? Lois! Oh, come on. Man, I'm going to remember this, Lois. Don't you guys remember that? The little yellow thing with the handle, and you push it around and you sweep the carpet. It's called the hokey cat. Anyways, you guys are crazy. <laughs> I have a Dyson. Cost me seven hundred and fifty dollars. I can suck my cat up with it. <laughs> well, get one and start singing hymns. That's the point. <laughs> what? But serious. Back to the point. Verse sixteen. Why is that not the norm? It leads, see, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, comma, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, comma, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Why is that not the norm? It's a fair question, people. Really, it is. All right, getting back to our key point. We read our Bibles in order to have confidence in the following, up here on the board. The impossibility of Christ abandoning his sheep. Jesus Christ is our great shepherd, which means that he is perfect in all he does. Did I do that thing again? Oh, there's that period again. What are you going to do? Which means that he is perfect in all he does, including guarding his sheep, never ever deserting them. Be encouraged. Okay, the final reference passage revealed the writer's lament on full display. Go to Lamentations 3.17. Lamentations 3.17. Some of you might answer the call from Colossians 3.16 by identifying with Lamentations 3.17. Maybe that's why you're not hugging it out. Maybe that's not... Why is that so funny? Maybe that's not why... Maybe that's why you're a miserable wretch. Like, for real, some of you can't even be alone with yourselves for two seconds because you're that miserable. I'm just saying. And I'm speaking from experience. It happens to me. I'm not saying I'm above any of you. I'm just saying this is what happens. You look at Colossians 3.16 and say, that is magnificent. I would love to be that person. I would love to be that person. But then here we are. Lamentation 3.17. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished 
and so has my hope from the Lord. It's probably fair to say that on average, the average, quote, so-called Christian household looks more like this than Colossians 3.16. And that is awful. There's really no reason for it. That's the point. And that's what the Spirit's trying to encourage us, uh, us with this whole week and before. This, this writer is full-on, or was full-on depressed up here on the board on the topic of depression, which has been coming up a lot as of late as well. Arguably, the quickest pathway to depression begins with losing hope. If you want to become depressed, depressed just means, look, you can always have lows, right? Someone cuts you off, you have a low point, you know, you have a bad, something happens, you get a low point, but you usually like, you know, like rebound right out of that, right? Like, woo, yeah, I like boing, I'm coming back out, whatever. But how do you stay down there? How do you get low and then stay low? How do you get depressed down and stay down? Well, you lost hope somehow. Because hope is the thing that uplifts you out. Right? There's always tomorrow. What if you've never read Lamentations 3, 22 and 23? What if you've never heard that God's faithfulness is renewed every morning? What if you've only heard about the wrath of God and it's been lopsided because you've been stuck in some crazy religion that on purpose keeps you down? What if that's all you, what if you don't have the word of God? What if you don't understand that, that Jesus, what if you don't understand the, the doctrine of eternal security? What if you think you can lose your salvation because that's what you were taught? Or if you're not good enough, you go to some ridiculous place called purgatory or some other version of it in some other religion. What if you, that's what you think? Of course you're going to be depressed. There's no hope in that. Where's your hope? You can't hope in lies. There's no deliverance in lies. There's only freedom in what? Truth. And the truth shall make you free. So arguably the quickest pathway to depression begins with losing hope. Hold your thumb there. Go to Psalm 34, 17. Psalm 34, 17. There's always, always, always a reason for hope for we believers in Christ. Always. If you're depressed as a believer, you're, you're missing something. Something, you're missing something that is meant some promise from God. It's probably the word of God in, in its completion, if you would, uh, that you're missing. You're missing something from the word of God. And therefore, you're missing hope. And you have no way to get out, it seems. But that's a lie. Psalm 34, 17 the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In other words, he delivers the depressed. Again, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Again, up here on the board. If you're depressed, you 
you're, you've lost hope somehow. You've bought some lie. Or it's been so long since you have taken in the Word of God that your hope is slowly fading. Arguably, the quickest pathway to depression begins with losing hope. 34, 17 to 18. The point the Spirit's making here is the same one He's been making since the start of this message. If we lose sight of or remain ignorant to God's promises, we suffer because we lose hope for deliverance. If we lose sight of His promises, we suffer because we lose hope for deliverance. Our confidence in God's promise to deliver us wanes. This happens when we believe lies from the kingdom of darkness, when we open our hearts to the whisperings of our enemies. Satan would love nothing more than for you to stay down. Teshuka? To pin you on your back. So we lose our confidence in God's promises when we believe lies, when we open our hearts to the whisperings of our enemies. We just read in Colossians 3, 15 to 16, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And the hint was read your Bible. You see, my friends, the word is our protection. It's our shield. It's not just so you can um, read it and feel good in the moment. Right? Uh, like the analogy to a soldier, you, you might enjoy training. I used to like training as a soldier. I used to like training. And, but that's not, you're, you're trained for the field. You're trained for battle. So the word isn't just about, oh, that was such a good read, and that's the end of it. It's, I just put on the shield of faith. I'm donning the full armor of God when I read my Bible. I'm now protected from all the lies. And you choose the point, you choose the lie that you're most susceptible to. You choose it. Because you all have different lies that you're susceptible to. Just like I do. But what I do know, what the Word says, is that it is our protection. It's our shield. Ephesians 6.11 says, put on the full armor of God. It's talking about the Word. Put on Christ. Put on love. So, when we're protected by the Word, we have peace. Go to Philippians 4, verse 7. Philippians 4, verse 7. That's what the Spirit's trying to impress upon all of us. He's saying, don't even just read the Bible because it's going to make you feel good in the moment. Or there's going to be something that you say, oh my word, every time you read the Bible, it's oh my word. I was just thinking about... Uh, Scott's situation when he married that person and the day before God gave him a technique to use in that situation to actually save a physical life. It's the same thing. At the time, he's probably like, well, that was interesting. 
right? You're probably like, that was cool. Some guy saved another dude. That's pretty cool, right? Not knowing the day before that he'd need it the very next day. You might read something in the Word of God, and the same thing happens. You read it, and you go, ah, oh, that's cool. And literally the next day, he gives you the opportunity to apply it to your life, to spend it. What good is having all the wealth in heaven if you don't know how to spend it? Amen? That's the point. Philippians 4, 7, case in point. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's awesome. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Ah. Well, where, where do you get all that stuff? Like you say, that's fantastic. Definitely one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Not that favorites count, you know what I mean. Such a blessing to be able to read Philippians 4, 7, and 4, 8. Such an incredible blessing. You might ask, though, after you read that, it's wonderful that God promises His peace, but how does this happen again? Practically speaking? Sounds all ethereal, you know, like kind of like, ooh, yeah, God's peace and blah, blah, blah. How does it actually happen, though? Like, where's the rubber hit the road on this peace thing? When do I get mine? Like, He literally answers it in the next verse. Imagine that. Can you imagine that? Verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Any questions? <laughs> be a disciple of the Word of God. Be a student of the Word of God. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Any questions? There you go. There's your answer. You read the first two verses there, right? Verses uh, 7 and 8, and you're like, that's amazing. You say, well, how does it happen? Verse 9. And you might say, but Paul was talking about in me, just on a theological note. Remember that in the context of the passage, Paul, being an apostle, had the authority of the Word of God at the time, which means that his statement is tantamount to all of us saying now the things we have learned and received and hear and seen in the Bible. It's the same thing. When he said in me, he's an apostle, he was the authority. For us, we have the written word. It's the tantamount to saying in the Bible. In other words, if we know Holy Scripture because we read our Bibles, we have peace, peace being a function of confidence, of course, Confidence in God's promises. We have peace because we have received firsthand the promises of God. Right there in black and white and sometimes red in your Bible. There they are. Isn't that amazing? That's the, card. That's the, the unlimited card. Swipe it as much as you want. Eat as much as you like. And what does the Word of God say in the beginning of class? It never returns empty-handed. So if you eat, if you dine on the Word of God, there's always a return on it, a good one. 
As a backdrop, what's your alternative? The vacuum effect. If you're not dining on the Word of God, what are you dining on? Something unholy. Something that bears fruit after its own kind. It's called evil and sin and misery. Those are your options. Dine on the Word, peace, freedom, confidence, hope. All the blessings, all the promises of God right there. Always for the taking. Swipe, 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 swipe. Unlimited credit card. Or over here, the alternative, which bears fruit, but it's not to your benefit. We have peace because we have received firsthand the promises of God right in our Bibles. With what little time I've got left up here on the board, just to reiterate how we lose hope. We lose hope when we confess to our enemies what isn't true about ourselves. The kingdom of darkness lies and tells us that the Lord can and will desert us unless, and you can fill in the blank with some fear tactic. We're lied to incessantly. You don't measure up. You know, you've never been good enough. Okay, the Word of God says, who owns the weights and scales? The Lord does. Why the hell are you listening to anybody about what your self-worth is that you won't measure up? By whose standards? Yours, you jackass? You miserable wretch? I'm going to listen to a miserable wretch destined for the lake of fire before I just simply open up my Bible and read the truth? Pretty much. That's what most Christians do. I was watching this uh, individual who's got like a street evangelism ministry. And by far, his hardest customer, so he's out there giving the pure gospel, including repentance. Like, you know, you're under the wrath of God until you repent, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The hardest customers he faces are by far other Christians, self-described Christians. By far. They're unreasonable. They literally have another God. But they claim that it's the God. In many ways, they try to lump our God into, in with their God. I don't know where I was taking that. I don't know. Anybody remember? How about back to the point? How we lose hope. We lose hope when we confess to our enemies what isn't true about ourselves. The kingdom of darkness lies and tells us that the Lord can and will desert us unless, and you fill in the, you fill in the blank with some fear tactic. For those of us who read our Bibles, we have the following to guard our hearts and our minds. Go, uh, let's see, a la Philippians 4, 7. Go to Psalm 31, 24, and I'll finish up here shortly. How do we lose we confess to our enemies what isn't true about ourselves. And you know, you're at a severe disadvantage. I think this is where I was taking that other conversation. You're at a severe disadvantage if you don't have the Word of God. 
how do you even how do you even give a good defense like the Bible says if you don't have the thing that you're supposedly defending? How do you give a good defense of something you don't actually have or understand fully? You're going to lose hope if you even ever had it. Psalm 31:24 some more encouragement be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word I do hope. I mean, this is extremely surprising, I know. But look at the next slide. You ready? This is the net net. This is what do you think he keeps saying? Everything depends on that. I'm just like that encourager, right? I'm the shepherd. Get out of the thicket. You know, let's go over here. Let's read some green. Let's eat some green grass over here. Let's do that. But you are held responsible for your own life, for your own decisions. Not me. You are. So read your Bibles. As the Spirit taught us on Sunday, one of the great things about reading our Bibles is that we have clarity. Clarity to do what? And this is a big principle that's been, I think, three messages now. Clarity to confess our lives before the holy God of the universe. Confess our lives. Not little boxed-in sins. Our lives do we say the same thing as Jesus said about, says about us? If we were both standing on stage, and we're both looking in the same mirror, do we both say the same thing? Why read our Bible up here on the board? How do we confess our lives before the holy God of the universe if we have no idea of his standards? How, confession means to say the same thing. How do you say the same thing if you don't understand the standard? Because Jesus is the perfect standard. He understands it intrinsically perfectly and says, here's how it is. And you say, I, I agree. And he says, why do you agree? I don't know. Or you say, I totally disagree. Like some of these people in the park with that evangelist guy. I totally disagree. The guy would say, have you read your Bible? No. How do you disagree then? I just do. How do you even disagree? How do you agree or disagree if you have no idea what the standard is? If the standard's right here. How do you agree or disagree on what's right and wrong in your life? How do you confess your life before the holy, sovereign God of the universe if you don't read your Bible? What is it that you're confessing? The only standard you have in the absence of His is the one you were born with, which was fleshly, and the one you learned about from Maury Povich, or Oprah, or, or Howard Stern, or some other ridiculous moron in this world, or some football announcer, or some baseball announcer, or some hairdresser, or whatever it is, toenail maker, doer-upper, I don't know what you call it. I don't do that stuff. What do you call them? Toenail, what do you call them? Yeah, so the lady's like, never been. 
I've never been to that Asian lady down at the mall. Nope, don't know what you're talking about. The one that upcharges you to the nine, going for a five dollar job, you come out ninety five dollars broke, right? Mm -hmm. Never done that. No ladies. Nope. <laughs> How do you confess your life if there's no standard? I would say it's impossible. Would you agree? The only standard you have is the one that was given to you in place of the Word of God. We must read our Bible in order to gain knowledge of the divine standards of living. Stated differently, how do we say the same thing as God if we don't take in His Word? How? How do we say the same thing as God if we don't take in His Word? The whole idea, the foundation to the spiritual life is what? The key to the spiritual life is what? There you go. To be humbled before the sovereign of the universe, our maker, our creator, our redeemer. We have to be humble before him, before his standard. He's the one with the weights and the scales. Before his standard, on his scale of values, not our own. That's what we're after. That's the starting point for confession. That's the starting point for confession. He says, if you go through that process on the other side, are all my promises of peace and contentment and happiness, confidence, hope, all those things that you see in so many rare cases nowadays. There's nobody doing Colossians 3.16. There's no one singing to the Lord I'm not saying it never happens, but you know what I'm saying. How many households are that picture of what we read? And why not? Shouldn't we confess that to our Lord and say, geez, my house was like the beginning of Lamentations 3. That's a good place to start. Because the God, God can work with that. God can work with humility and so that's all the Spirit's trying to say. We're out of time, but that's all He's been trying to say. He's just trying to get you postured so that you confess your whole life, that you stand naked before God and say, here I am, and I, I'm learning, and I'm understanding, and I have wisdom about your standards. I'm going to shed all those standards, some of which propped me up in the world. I'm going to shed all those things. I'm going to consider it all garbage like Paul did. Just to know you. That's how we're supposed to come to Him. And we should have gratitude on our way. We should have gratitude that we have entree to the Holy God of the universe. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much for telling us the truth. And we know that it is this truth that sets us free. Father, thank You for never holding any punches but convicting us. Thank you for your Spirit's ministry and his power in our lives. Thank you for sanctifying us. We just ask for your blessings. As we take all the things we've learned back to our homes, we ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.